Ladies and gentlemen, it's now time for the most popular and least listened to podcast in the world, the Sixth Sense Media Podcast, with your host, Mike Phelan. I'm Aiden Paladin. Uh, I am a YouTuber. I'm a social scientist. I was a, I, uh, previously a PhD student in communication studies with an emphasis on media psychology uh, and specifically a transhumanist as it relates to transhumanism and um, player avatar relationships. That's my primary area of focus. My secondary area is uh, social identity and uh, intergroup dynamics. So <clears throat> that being said, <laughs> what I was doing in college uh, in my research, I basically took and moved it on to talking about those topics on YouTube, trying to make social science more available to everybody, uh, because it can be confusing sometimes to read the studies if you're not used to reading them and knowing how to interpret data and knowing how to understand statistical analyses and what, what do these numbers mean. So my goal really is just to simplify that to make it a bit more digestible and fun, I guess, in the process, as fun as I can make uh, long-winded social science papers. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen uh, your study of social science evolve drastically over the past 10 years as we've seen the, the news cycle and uh, identity politics and everything else kind of ramp up? A little bit removed from it, at least in my field. So my field in particular, communication, media psychology, and the associated fields, which would be social psychology. Um, Ha really haven't changed that much. One thing that it's important people should probably know is that social science research and all research for the most part is on a minimum usually six months behind whatever is happening in the media because it takes us that much time to conduct a study and print it. You know, it has to go through the publication process, which can take a long time of reviews and then being sent back for um, revision and then being sent back for review. Um, it can take weeks to conduct a study because you have to get your sample. So basically anything you see published, even if it's a brand new study that was just published today, you have to understand the research and work that went into that. And really the planning stages probably happened a year and a half ago. And since research takes such a long time, by that time, the news cycle is filtered through 20 different subjects. And right. do, you do you find it's hard to inform the public of reality versus what they've seen processed through the media? Oh, definitely. So there's there's a couple of uh, very um, general media effects uh, that you pretty much learn in any kind of intro to media psych class. And the first one of those is agenda setting theory. Agenda setting theory is McCombs and Shaw in 1979. And what they found was a 0.9 correlation between what the media reports on and what people think about in terms of topics. It has no influence on what opinion people have on those topics, but it influences what they think about. So for example, if the media says every single day that let's say, um, I don't know. Oh, I, I see this on Twitter all the time. Whenever something weird happens politically, for some reason, Star Wars starts trending. <laughs> so uh, I have noticed it now, like during the election and stuff like that, I, I kept seeing Star Wars trending all the time when there was, or like with this late, uh, recent uh, GME GameStop thing, suddenly Star Wars started trending again. And there's no real reason for that, but it can get people talking about Star Wars instead of, instead of talking about politics. Um, <clears throat> For example, and that's what agenda setting does, is it, is it sets the agenda, as it, it says, and uh, gets people thinking about certain topics um, over others. There's also um, cultivation theory and something called the mean world hypothesis. Uh, cultivation theory is a, a pretty loose theory, but the general uh, thesis posits that um, people will cultivate a view of the world that is based on the things they see in media. Um, 
that's also related to something called the mere exposure effect, which is that, for example, uh, people when some of the early studies on it uh, polled people about like how uh, likely they might be to make friends with a gay person. And then they had them watch Will and Grace. And generally speaking, the uh, propensity of people to be comfortable having gay friends went up after watching a TV show that depicted an arguably positive portrayal of gay people. That's cultivation theory. And then there's the mean world hypothesis or um, mean world syndrome, which is the idea that um, long-term cultivated exposure to media will, particularly news media, causes people to think that the world is a more negative place than it really is, that crime is more common than it really is, um, and, and so on. Uh, so these are just some basic media effects. There's also, there's many, many theories uh, that I could go over, but those are some of the basic ones as they relate to news. Uh, do you feel that this is uh, more damaging than it should be? Should should something be done to kind of curb this um the effects that the media is having on the general public or is that would that be overstepping boundaries i think that's definitely overstepping part of the thing is uh, in media psychology is that these effects are small in terms of actually changing behavior or changing beliefs for example 35 years of meta-analyses on the relationship between video games and violence can find no such connection right what we can find is a relationship between playing video games, violent video games in particular, and arousal, and then arousal can be related to aggression, and then aggression can be related to violence potentially, but there's no direct causal link between that. Just like I, we have, there's no evidence that watching the news will make you more violent or will make you more cynical. Uh, it will affect the kind of things that you're concerned about in your daily life to a degree, but again, uh, it doesn't change your opinion on those things. And the thing with the mean world uh, syndrome stuff, that's only present in that people only start to think the world is the worst place when they watch a bunch of news when they specifically are very heavy media consumers. So you have to be consuming media constantly for those effects to be manifest. Why do you think social media seems to be uh, a hive of, of that? Is it because it's people are actively seeking out uh, the worst things possible on, on social media? Or is it, I, I, I don't know. It's not my expertise. So I don't really... Because it seems like when you go on Twitter, you see the worst of the worst. Uh, there's no nuance. There's no, there's no middle ground. It's it's either one or the other. And those of us that try to uh, get in the middle of it and see like what the facts are, it's there are it's a, it's an uphill battle. It's almost a meaningless battle. So I don't know what it is oh, about sure. social media that drives that. <clears throat> So there's two things I would bring up. First is the negativity bias. Negativity bias is the propensity that we all have to focus on bad stuff before good stuff, because bad stuff is more interesting in a way. Uh, you know, why is the news, why does the news run negative stories all the time that create that mean world syndrome? Well, the reason why they do is because it gets people to watch the news. You know, when uh, news channels do those fluff pieces about, there is a new bakery in, in town and they have a dog as a mascot and you, know, you interview the baker or whatever, like nobody watches that. I mean, it's a nice, you know, feel good story, but it, people tune out. They want to, they in some level want to see the violence and they want to see the negativity. And in part of that's an evolutionary response because we want to be aware of dangers, right? But because we actually go towards negative things, that makes it seem more common than it actually necessarily is. Um, the other thing that... <clears throat> is potentially at play here 
is something called a filter bubble. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become a bit of a pop culture thing more than, than hard science at this point. But um, for people who don't know what a filter bubble is, is that essentially, particularly on social media, people um, have a small bit of the world that they perceive that's filtered through the other people that they follow and um, their connection uh, of friendships. For example, um, some of the seminal research on it found that <clears throat> if you are uh, overweight, then you're more likely to have friends who are overweight on social media because this is the, at least the hypothesis is that it normalizes uh, being overweight. And it would be the same mm-hmm. thing if like, if, if you're really skinny, you'd be more likely to have thin friends on social media, or I don't know if you really like Mexican food or you're really like um, Italian food or whatever. And you post about it all the time. You're more likely to start seeing the same stuff. Part of that is, is people acquiescing. And part of that is that the algorithm is showing you what it thinks you want to see. So, um, as a result, because social media curates uh, what people see to a degree, because it shows you what it thinks you want to see, uh, this even goes as far as like Google searches and stuff. I mean, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but very frequently I will be having a conversation and then I'll go Google something related to it, uh, talking with a friend or something, and I'll type in one word and it will know exactly what I wanted to look for. Now, maybe, and I, I think that's pretty much just predictive modeling. They know that it might be something I would look uh, for in the future. And social media is the same way. It's a lot of predictive modeling. It's a lot of filter bubble effects. The result of that is, is that if you have a really negative friend group and your friends share a lot of like negative news and a lot of political stuff, you're unlikely to see more positive things without an intentional uh, influence from the network. Uh, for example, I personally noticed, and this is anecdotal, that right after the U.S. election, the only things that YouTube would recommend me were like cat videos because I think people were being so negative and they wanted to change people looking at, na- at news that might upset them. So it was like, mm. no, no, look at this cat video instead. So those are all potential effects that can influence um, what people see and why they tend to see the negative over the positive. How do you see uh, social media evolving with us in the future? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it's looks gonna like they're going to start. <laughs> looks like they're just going to keep banning people <laughs> because that's a certain very specific way to uh, navigate that filter and to create mm-hmm. that filter is to just ban people who are posting things that you don't think will um, aren't aren't conducive to the the filter that you want to create and curate. Mm-hmm. So certainly banning seems to be uh, a big way, a way that they've done for years now and and basically lied about until they got caught doing it is shadow banning. Um, which is, you know, you think you have full access to the website. You think everyone is seeing your stuff, but it turns out, no, your privileges basically have been turned off. Um, no one else has seen what you're posting. These are, um, and that, that's a far more effective way, I would say, than an outright ban, uh, because banning, of course, is going to create reactance. It's going to instantly uh, make someone angry, and then they can go tell other people about it, and then that creates a, a scandal. And um, so they obviously don't want that. Shadow banning works better. Um, that's, I think shadow banning and doing more of that kind of stuff is just going to be the way it's going to continue to go. Uh, do you think that might force the government's hand to label these outlets as uh, publishers rather than platforms? Oh, gee, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, look, I, I'm an extreme advocate for free speech on the internet, uh, personally. I don't want Section 230 to be removed uh, because it will mean that little web forums, you know, with 50 people on them, or even with a couple thousand people on them that are independently run, will not be able 
to stand up to that scrutiny because inevitably the people who run those websites and their web hosts will get sued by someone because some user on the forum on the website said something that was a lie that was malicious you know whatever um and that that's going to make it very difficult for independent uh creators however if really 230 needs to be enforced if Twitter want, and Facebook want to be publishers and curate specifically, not just like by suggesting, oh, we think you'd like this post. I, you know, like another thing that Facebook does in particular is that it, during certain times of the day, they're more likely to recommend you like food videos because they think it might be around the time you're, you're going to eat. Uh, they're actually extremely, uh, it, the AI involved in Facebook and what it promotes people is actually quite advanced in figuring out and anticipating what it thinks you want to see. Um, in fact, there's been some research we even did on it that showed that like Facebook can tell if you're having a bad day based on what you've been posting and, and looking up and stuff. And we'll show you cat videos and stuff like that, you know, on your, on your feed instead of, you know, news or we'll be more likely to show you a, a post a friend made from six months ago about how they just had a baby rather than another friend posting about being sad. So um, it, it will be more, yeah, curated stuff. It's hard to say that whether or not that's because if the stuff is available on the platform, then it is acting as a, as a platform and not as a publisher. But it, it's just skirting the line if some information is being promoted while others, other information is being demoted. And moreover, if um, people are, are being outright shadow banned or just banned, if you don't allow speech. I mean, like we a judge ruled on this, right? So there was a rule a couple of years ago that you couldn't ban Donald Trump or he, he couldn't block people, excuse me, he couldn't block people from Twitter because that was his means of communication with the public. So that is a ruling that states that Twitter is essentially the public square, the digital public square. And if Twitter is a digital public square, as, as ruled by a judge, then you can't really ban anyone unless they posted something illegal, in my opinion, mm -hmm. which means 230 needs to be enforced. So, which means that um, if someone posts, let's say, uh, nudes of somebody, which happens all the time, leaked mm -hmm. nude pictures of somebody on Twitter, and Twitter leaves it up, which is a scandal right now, actually, um, ongoing, then uh, you can sue Twitter if they if they are if they do not have the 230. Uh, protections. As long as they have 230 protection, you got to go find the person who posted it and sue them. Um, and Twitter is under no real obligation to even take it down, um, even if you make a privacy request, as they have done in the past, where specifically someone had posted um, inappropriate images of children on Twitter, mm -hmm. and Twitter refused to take it down. So they clearly need to lose their 230 protections. I, I like 230, I don't wanna get rid of 230, but it either needs to be enforced on sites like Twitter and Facebook, uh, or they need to be uh, not eligible for its protection if they're gonna behave this way, so. Uh, do, you, do you foresee a certain political party taking this up in arms as opposed to another one, or do you think this is something that has uh, bipartisan support? Well, Ted Cruz is the one really fighting for it. I don't really see anyone on the left. And the reason why is because it benefits them, because the people who got banned from Twitter, for example, were Donald Trump and Trump supporters. It wasn't. Now, the, it does, recently, a couple days later, actually, a bunch of Antifa accounts got banned. So I think the left might start to care if mainstream leftists get banned. But for the most part, it's conservatives who get banned and who get shadow banned and who have their voices um, shut down. So uh, no, I don't think it will be bipartisan. I think it will be Ted Cruz and a couple of Republicans who will fight against this. 
and Democrats will be more than pleased to let it affect their enemies until it starts to affect them. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's that same, you know, they 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 uh, first they came for the Republicans and I said nothing because I was not a Republican and so on and so forth. Well, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, how do you see academia playing a part in this? Since, since Silicon Valley is basically more of a young person's game at this point, it's all the upstarts are run by very young people fresh out of college or freshly dropped out of college. Uh, <laughs> obviously, they bring with them a certain set of values that we've seen employed on social media. Either it's very strongly in favor of one thing and very against another. How does academia affect that? I don't know how, uh, well, <laughs> it's hard to say it's like a direct one-to-one -one effect, right. but there's certainly, academia is extremely far left in terms mm -hmm. of, that's just a reality. They've done polls. There's there's Pew data research that indicates that I, I think it's a very large percentage of, of professors are left wing and, and a worryingly percent, uh, large percent that describe themselves as extreme far left, like communists uh, right. who are professors. And there's virtually none who would consider themselves uh, far right wing and maybe only 10% who consider themselves right wing at all. So we're talking about 90% of academia has a, a potential left wing bias. It depends on your field though. Um, I went through you know many years of uh, undergrad and graduate doctoral school and I never felt any kind of political push, but I went to a Catholic undergrad and then a very science oriented uh, grad and doc program. So I think if you get lucky, <laughs> it might not affect you. Um, and there's a story I tell sometimes about that, which is I was writing a paper one time for journal publication, one of my first ones, and I was uh, I needed to describe my sample of like, you know, I had this many Caucasian participants, I had this many African American participants, and I didn't know the right word to use for Hispanic because at that time, this was a couple years ago now, there was a bit of a push in the more less quantitative to like more feelings-based social science and not what I'm do, which is numbers-based, mm -hmm. statistics-based. But there was a big push against not using the word Hispanic because it was offensive in some way. And of course you can't use the word Latino or Latina because that's offensive. So I remember I turned in my draft to my uh, advisor and I wrote Latin at, which is a thing they were using for a while. Now they use Latinx, but it was like, it's, it's the at symbol, which so it's both an O and an A. Mm -hmm. And he just laughed. And he was like, why did you do this? And I said, well, I'm trying to not be offensive. And he's like, just write Hispanic. <laughs> you know? But um, th that kind of stuff, again, it's not it's not infiltrating all the sciences. If you go into pure mathematics, if you go into architecture or something like that, I don't think it's going to be an issue. If you go into English, if you go into philosophy, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you intentionally go into something like women's studies, uh, but even you know psychology, which is, again, my area more or less is uh, not safe, not at the undergrad level. Um, and, and it's still, it's certainly iffy at the graduate level too, particularly in terms of what you can get published, mm -hmm. because even though you're submitting for peer review and which means it's, it's a blind peer review, which means that, um, the other person reading your article, your paper has no idea who you are. Right. Um, they can guess if they start to see a lot of a certain type of paper come out of a certain institution, they can probably guess who you might be, but they're not supposed to. Uh, and, and the result of that, though, is that if they don't like some of the implications of your study, they can kind of just, I mean, they can write up a rationale as to why to not allow it to be public, uh, 
to be published. Mm-hmm. Um, that's super unethical. They're really not supposed to do that. But journalism and academia, even though they're, they both make all of these vows to never be unethical, certainly do it, you, you know? <laughs> that's, when I took, I did take some journalism classes, even though my major was in business. Uh, something that stuck with me through throughout those journalism classes was facts are what matter, but it seems coming out <laughs> facts don't really matter the story matters it seems to be what the push is do you is sensationalism now more of a driving force in the news media than the facts of the case are, are facts just too boring oh a hundred percent i think that's that's <laughs> unquestionable i mean it's it's we live in a clickbait society mm-hmm. right so these uh, the, a bunch of journal or a bunch of not journals, um, news publications basically came out and said a couple months ago that we don't know what we're going to do when Trump is out of office, because mm-hmm. for the last four and a half years, our entire business model has been based around writing sensational things about Trump and knowing people will, will hate click on it. So without Trump, what are you going to write about? You know, and I mean, it was... Um, th- there were a bunch of, of silly articles that came out even the first week of Biden's presidency that were about like... I don't know, pointless stuff like about his dog or something, or it was just like completely fluff crap. Um, and I, I, they're forced to do that right now, but they sure love Trump in their own way. They called it the Trump bump because mm-hmm. a lot of these news outlets were actually on the verge of bankruptcy in 2015. And Trump made politics WWE. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, they could get clicks on anything. Uh, there is one of my favorites is that there is a New York Times article that said the headline was something like uh, Donald Trump wants to build moat around border, fill it with snakes and alligators. And I mean, <laughs> it's not it's not true, by the way. <laughs> there, someone claimed it's true. There's a woman who wrote a book and, and made it, she said that she it was from gossip that she heard around the White House. And they said Trump was yelling and screaming about wanting to put alligators in a moat. And it's just oh, and it was worse. It was he wanted to put an uh, electrify the wall and then have um soldiers stationed on it to intentionally shoot at the legs of people trying to cross so they'd fall into the the alligator pit like just something crazy like dr evil stuff Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean but that sure got clicks i'm I'm sure that they made a lot of money off of that article which they had to put a bunch of retractions on because even people were like i don't know about that one um but the the journalistic ethics right are truthfulness accuracy objectivity impartiality fairness and public accountability I don't know if you can say any of those are currently ethics that are being um, held to standard for mm-hmm. the news media. I don't think any of them. They, and I don't even think they pretend to be. Because if, if they say something that's false, this is interesting. There's research on this, is that um, the very minor effect of retractions, right? In academia, if a study gets retracted, everyone knows about it. Like it's, it's huge news if a study gets retracted. In journalism, they just kind of put an update at the top of the article and say, oh, this little text and oh, this this journal or this uh, this article has been updated to reflect more accurate information. It doesn't matter if they update it a month from now or a year from now. Uh, they can say that, oh, we, we have a, a duty to, to accuracy and fairness in the news and we're holding ourselves accountable by making this edit. It's like, yeah, well, everyone who was ever going to read it read it a year ago. Mm-hmm. And there's research that shows that even when people update 
art, even when these news article uh, outlets update their articles, people don't believe the second headline. They're prone to rem to remember and recall the first one and doubt the second one is true. It's called primacy effect. So, <laughs> uh, I don't even know what they could do to get around it. Even when they try, to, because what's what's the harm? It, they get away with it by being like, "Look, we made we made a retraction, we changed it," but it doesn't matter. The fake news, such as it is, is already out there, or the sens sensationalized version of the news is already out there. So, and also, real quick, something else that people learn in these journalism schools, I know because I, I went to one, is, is a very important ethical responsibility to beneficence, which is do no harm. And I do not think that most journalists ever consider um, beneficence when they do the stuff they do. They think about clicks and money. Is it even fair to say that we have a plethora of actual journalists anymore, or do we more or less have bloggers on a payroll? I think we have activists on a payroll <laughs> in a lot of cases. It, it goes for people on the far right too, by the way. Oh, I mean, yeah. they, they'll sensationalize. Yeah. I mean, like some of Fox News's headlines can be a bit ridiculous. You know, like they're not immune from this crap. And and if Fox News is ridiculous, a little bit like the Daily Beast, I mean, like, come on, they can do it too. It's This is not like a, a partisan issue. It's a bipartisan one. But the only thing is that the, the media in general is so far left that it does seem to be a, an overall left-leaning slant on the stuff that you get um, in these articles. But uh, no, it just seems to be that's how journalism is now. I, to me, that's, it's hard to imagine because... I got a degree in journalism. I was working on my undergraduate degree. There was an issue where basically I had changed my major my sophomore year. And it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's complicated. Basically, what all that happened is they added a new class that was only taught in the spring. And mm -hmm. I had to take it to get my degree that I've been working on for the four years. And so it's like, well, you can't graduate now because you now need to take this class that you didn't have to take when you originally said this was going to be your major. So you can just wait till the spring. <laughs> but I had a scholarship. So I said, how many credits would it take for me to get another bachelor's in journalism? Uh, and it was specifically what it was, was public relations. But they were like, oh, it's so-and-so classes. Yeah, you could do that in a year. Like, thanks. But anyway, so I had to take all these ethics classes. And what really astonishes me, and maybe it's because I took most of these classes within a one-year period is that I know how many ethics courses you have to take to become a journalist. I know how ethics is a component of every single journalism course. So when they behave unethically, it's not out of ignorance, right? They had to at least memorize these things for a test grade. They're, they know better and are choosing to abandon what at least the way it was taught to me is that like, this is this is the fourth estate. This is a sacred duty that you have to the public. And these people, I guess, are just saying, nah, I don't care. Money is, is more important. And I guess that's the case for a lot of people. It's hard to be ethical when money's on the table. Is it the journalists themselves or do you think this is coming from the top, the, the editor in chief or the CEO of whatever news organization? I certainly think if you rock the boat too much, you won't get your articles published. You won't get a paycheck. I mean, that's the unfortunate truth. Mm -hmm. If you're not, <clears throat> a way a lot of these companies work is that you get paid a commission based on how well your article does. And if you're 
producing clickbait, well, you're going to make more money. And that also might mean not just that you make more money for the article, it might mean that you um, are, you know, up for promotion. I mean, I would, I don't know, because I'm not inside of these organizations, how common it is for someone who has a differing opinion to get fired, because I don't know if they get hired in the first place. And I think that if you if you are a right, this is this is really the sad part. If you are a slightly right leaning or even center leaning person, and you're a journalist and you really have a passion for journalism, are you going to apply to work at the New York Times, or are you going to apply to work at Fox News? Do you know what I mean? I think that you just it it is creating in and of itself a self fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. of very hard line dividing people. So only. So some outlets just do not report on more nuanced stuff because I don't think anybody in the center wants to work for MSNBC, you know? Well, I'll tell you, it's not exclusive to news media either. Uh, mm. it, it, it goes without saying that the entertainment world is very left-leaning. So someone like me who was a progressive, was very progressive and then just got burned out of it, going into a, a round table with a bunch of, uh, celebrities and directors, and then hearing six out of ten journalism journalists there want to talk about uh, feminism in a science fiction uh, TV series. I'm just like, well, what does this have to do with what we're actually here for? Why are we talking about feminist theory in a spectacle? It's <laughs> what does this have to do with right. it? And then during one of those roundtables, there was a discussion going on in between uh, people coming to sit down and talk to us about um, The Last Jedi. And I said to, no. I, I said to one of the, it was, it was a bunch of American journalists and then a bunch of foreign journalists. And I was talking to the uh, foreign journalists from Spain about it. And then the journalist from Buzzfeed overheard me talking about how I didn't like Ray. And she just blew up at me about how, <laughs> Kylo Ren was the antithesis of uh, rape culture or something. And I was like, I just said, I just didn't like them, like the character, man. <laughs> like, oh, but the last Jedi stuff and all the, the new star Wars is some of the most, yeah, it's, it's a perfect example of that stuff though. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that was, look at how they have demonized the fandom menace uh, of being like, these people uh, are the worst people in the universe because they don't like this movie for, mm-hmm. for reasons that they have explained to you in five hour long reviews, <laughs> 10 hour long reviews, very clearly has little to do with, uh, you know, what sex a character is. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's certainly an interest. And, and I mean, I hate to use it to bring it up because it's awful that we still have to talk about this, but it, I mean, that's what Gamergate was too was uh resurrect that boogeyman jesus uh, christ oh they, they're doing it right now with this gme thing i can't yeah. believe it i can believe it because they, they'll never let it go um but you know that was the same thing of some people were like hey uh it looks like there's not a lot of good journalism in video game coverage uh and then it turned into you know what it turned into it was basically just some people saying um i'm critical of this thing slightly and that was just, for whatever reason, uh, verboten. Uh, I, I don't really get the Star Wars thing either. I don't know where that comes from. The, the fanatical need to defend films after it was like culturally normative for mm-hmm. a decade to make fun of the prequels as being just god awful. 
I mean, it's, it's everyone's childhood the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Like I always get that in my childhood defense, sort of defense on star Wars stuff of, Oh, it's, it's it's special to me in some way so that's why i'm so happy to see a woman represented and or whatever and it's like yeah but you know star wars fans made fun of the prequels for like decades mm -hmm. and i don't think that ruined their childhood to make fun of it and critique it but for some reason these movies are sacred and i certainly think disney found a good grift on that one <laughs> i don't i don't think they have to pay these people to to you know, die on that hill. I think they do it for free. <laughs> and their, their showrunners and their writers are being openly antagonistic towards yes. people. They're like, not, not people. I mean, I can understand people that's, that are being very, that are being negative just to be negative. And then people that have honest critiques of something, if something sounds like it's shit, I mean, <laughs> go ahead and say, it sounds like it's shit, but to actively say like, well, don't buy our books then if you don't like, like my shitty story like don't worry i won't Sorry. i i that, haven't bought a star wars book since 99 so don't worry yeah that is such a bizarre see i don't get that like i can't wrap my head around that cycle like what what the impetus behind that psychologically is mm -hmm. because first and foremost as a business your job is to make money you know so anytime that i see a business intentionally trying to not make money I get very confused <laughs> because mm. I don't understand why you would intentionally want to alienate your own core fan base. I guess because they think the core fan base of Star Wars is like 45, 50 year old guys, which mm -hmm. I don't think is accurate, but that's the core <laughs> audience. And, and they're like, well, they're going to die or retire soon. So let's, let's get the, the new hip feminist audience. But it's like, did you do any market research before you decided on this move? Because they're they're they've been married to it now for four years, mm -hmm. five years. So they're clearly all on board. Kathleen Kennedy and although I think she's been in some hot water, but whatever. They're they're all on board with this. The force is female. I, I, although I mean, The Mandalorian's been good. Uh, I didn't watch the second season yet, but I really liked the first one. Uh, it had its flaws, but uh, it was much better than the, the sequels. <laughs> Uh, and much and no forced feminism crap in it. Uh, my, my the reason I bring up the market research is it's that like did you not know that these like Gen Z millennial feminists that you're targeting don't have any money? Do you know who has money? Uh, Forty year old uh, boomer nerds who love Star Wars. <laughs> they have money. <laughs> but. Yeah. I had I plenty guess, of money to take my kid to uh, Galaxy's Edge and got her a lightsaber and a droid. I had that capital. Oh, was it fun? Because I've heard mixed things about Galaxy's Edge. I've heard it's kind it's, of meh. My, <laughs> my wife doesn't care for Star Wars at all. She likes the Mandalorian, but that's mm. watching it as kind of a, an outside, or watching it as a normie, being like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is this is a fun shoot shoot. As a baby, look at the cute baby Yoda. Yeah, that's, I mean. That was, the, that was the whole thing for her. Yeah. Look at the cute baby Yoda. But um, yeah, like my daughter, like she doesn't really care about Star Wars. She likes lightsabers. She mm -hmm. likes Darth Vader, but everything else she doesn't care about. But it, but she had a pretty good time there doing the stuff that she could interact with as a six-year-old. Right. Getting to build the lightsaber because it's something she could do, but walking around this largely vacant area yeah. with a bunch of shops, it's just, it's not it's not interactive enough it's not 
as far as set design, it's amazing looking, but you don't feel like it's Star Wars. You really don't. You don't get that feeling until like you see the Millennium Falcon, then you get that like teary-eyed moment like I yeah. did. And then you're like, okay, I'm done. There are too many people. This is Florida. It's hot. Let me go inside somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think it works better for Universal's Harry Potter because it's like yes. if you go to if you were to go to I forget what the um, the alley is not uh, in, in Harry alley. Potter. That's the bad one. Where is where is that is that the where, where's the one where they just go shopping? Like it makes sense that mm-hmm. if you to have a, a big shopping area mm-hmm. for the Harry Potter stuff, so you can because they did the same thing, and I, and I think they just stole that from Universal, where Universal has the uh, wand shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, and you know, it's a you can pay a bunch of money, and they'll do a big thing where you, you they pick out your wand for you and stuff. My friend did it, and she was, <laughs> she's a huge Harry Potter fan, so she mm-hmm. was amazed. But that was she did that maybe, geez, ten years ago now. So I think they just kind of thought, well, we'll just replicate the Universal Harry Potter experience. Uh, but I don't think it works well with Star Wars, at least not as well. It's harder to integrate it. Not when you take, not when you're when you create a whole new world that wasn't part of any right. of the trilogies that doesn't have, help <laughs> yeah you don't you have no real connection you have nothing that's familiar to longtime fans you've got new stormtroopers walking around you've got ray walking around and but other than the millennium falcon there's nothing there that harkens to that nostalgia you have to that leave that so part weird. of the park and go back to star tours to yeah. get that authentic star wars experience and that's what my kid kept dragging me to she said let's keep going let's go back to star tours like Nope, it's fine by yeah. me. <laughs> that is, it's such a bizarre. I, I honestly, from a marketing position, right? I don't mm-hmm. understand it. Uh, like I, I, like I said, the best I can figure is that they think the old fans are gonna die eventually. So that money, you know, that cash cow will die eventually. Which is, you're really cutting it short. I think. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you wanted to do this in thirty years from now. It might be an idea when the Star Wars fans are 70 uh, and, and retired, maybe. I don't know. It might be a better idea to try and usher in all this new stuff. But right now, the key demographic of people they're talking about are, are people who are actively working and making money and have the financial ability to go spend money on this stuff. Not the 25-year-old SGWs who work at a Starbucks. You know, uh, no offense, but a lot of these people that they're pandering to don't work, or if they do work, uh, you know, work fairly uh, low wage jobs. I, I, even even the professors don't make a lot of money. You know, mm-hmm. a women's gender studies professor does not make as much as even a communication studies pro- professor, I would imagine, and certainly not as much as a you know mathematician or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think even even if you have, and that that has to be like their dream job, right? Is to is to teach feminism. <laughs> And I think even that probably doesn't make more than about 60K a year. If that's your, your top end job, that or I guess what, be like a social media manager, be a, mm-hmm. a diversity advisor on mm-hmm. one of these. But those are the dream jobs, I guess. And my only point is that I don't, there's not a lot of money that I think is coming out of the audience mm-hmm. that Disney, for whatever reason, has decided to court. Uh, I think they need to do a market analysis. And uh, I think they need to do a, whoa, what's it called? Um, there's a, a, a thing in, in PR where we basically create like a, a four section panel of figuring out like, oh, SWAT, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Whoa, I pulled that up out of eight years of not remembering that. <laughs> um, 
but it's like, so for whatever brand or, or company you're running, a SWAT chart would be like, okay, here's our strengths. What's our strength as Star Wars? We've got a lot of middle-aged nerds who love this. Uh, they love remembering the thing from their childhood. And really all they want is more of the thing from their childhood. Um, strengths, uh, weaknesses, uh, it is that it's getting older. I would say that's a, a real weakness to Star Wars and that it did, uh, the, the prequels were a bit of an embarrassment for the most part. I don't hate the prequels, by the way. I just, <laughs> I know a lot of people really despise them. Um, so the prequels are a bit of an embarrassment. This, the IP is getting old. Um, you know, these actors uh, and the people involved are going to die uh, in the next couple of years, you know, sadly. But if you're doing a long-term analysis, you got to plan for stuff like that. And the fan base is getting older. So then I guess their opportunities is to say, well, let's get new people involved. I just don't think that it was a good idea to do this particular group because they don't have money, generally speaking, and I don't think they're interested. <laughs> I think they like Baby, Lo Baby Yoda but I and Ray, but I don't think they actually like Star Wars. Are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? Yes. So Campbell explained why people like Star Wars pretty succinctly. It's the hero's journey that's just mm -hmm. put into a, a sci-fi environment. It's a very simple, classic human story that you can find in every single culture on Earth has some variation of the hero's myth. And when you had a perfect formula that is clear, that clearly prints money, I do not understand why you would deviate from a money-making <laughs> machine. It just doesn't someone ran that SWOT analysis you know they did because they have people who are hired to do just this stuff mm -hmm. and I guess they just <laughs> they didn't do it or they need to hire different people I honestly the all the Star Wars stuff is, is a massive conundrum to me <laughs> I think uh it was they're trying to drive out the old fan base to accommodate the geek chic oh. uh group which means you have to change it to match what those people are looking for. They're not looking for something to be invested in long-term. They're looking for something that is highly marketable that you can slap on a bunch of merchandise and then just basically perpetuate that, that cycle of just consuming, not caring about the quality of what you're consuming, but just consuming. And that's what I feel Star Wars has been since The Force Awakens. Yeah. I've, I've had no reason... I've, I have a storage closet full of stuff from the 70s and 80s of Star Wars that is my retirement fund, basically. <laughs> uh, but That stuff will only go up in value, too, because <laughs> funnily enough, you know, there's, um, there's this thing called psychological reactance, which mm -hmm. is that people don't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. And so if you tell them, well, this is Star Wars now and you have to like it, the first thing people will do is be like, well, no, I like that. <laughs> and, and screw you for telling me what to like. So yeah. that stuff is going to only, you know, increase in value because people will get more and more nostalgic the further we get away from it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be entertained. I want to yeah. like the characters I'm watching. And I have to watch a lot of movies for my job. I get 10, 20 movies a week in my inbox to, to screen and review or interview people with. And if I'm not entertained, I'm not going to invest my time in either promoting the movie, telling people about it, talking to the people that are associated with it. I just, 
I need something I can grab onto and just putting something out there and slapping a Star Wars label on it or a Star Trek label or anything yeah. that it does not guarantee my interaction. And I th- that's where I think Disney is going wrong mm. because they're also doing this with other things that they, they're kind of doing it with Pixar. They're doing it with the Muppets. The, just because it has a name to it doesn't mean that the talent behind it is what caused us to be invested in the first place. I Muppets took a hit when when Henson died, but there was still people behind the scenes that had that passion for it. But now, who cares about the Muppets? Now let's make an adult Muppets film. Yep. That'll go over great. <laughs> what what is what is bringing me back to for that thing that I love? Uh, if there's no one with passion behind it, why should I have that? Why should I share that passion? That's how I look at entertainment media. But that may just be me because that's my main focus. I mean, normies could just like say, oh, <laughs> junk food, good, give me. I'll, I'll digest that and shit it out. But for people that care about cinema and care about the entertainment media that they consume, I mean, what's there for me to watch? There's really nothing. I mean, I watch YouTube more than anything anymore. And that's just because there's it, the people behind it's like, like your channel or... Uh, anyone else is like like uh uh i don't really want to name names of people that would that would feel tacky but people that have passion behind what they do i want to watch that because i feel like i'm getting something that's not just a product that's not just a reaction channel uh like the work you put into yours uh, your channel you put a shit ton of work i've seen the scripts Uh, you could easily just go out there and just be uh facetious and uh, hypercritical for no reason without having anything behind it. You could easily do that, but you don't. <laughs> so that's why I like enjoying things like that because yeah. I feel like there's substance behind it. If there's no substance, I don't care. I, maybe that makes me snobbish, but just the way it is. No, I, I, I do agree with that, by the way. And I think that what you said, that it's just about branding, that's that appears to be what it is, is that this thing is familiar to me. So uh, I like it. And there's um, something to be said about internal consistency there in in that um, avoiding of cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. in that if I have labeled myself as let's say a a Trekkie, right? (laughs) As I am, I've always been way more into Star Trek than Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But if I call myself a Trekkie and I'm inherently going to be more prone to buy Star Trek things or look at Star Trek stuff. Uh, And I think that the reason why I'm a bad fan is because when I watch a bad movie (laughs) with my favorite thing attached to it, that makes me far angrier because Mm -hmm. it creates dissonance. It's like, well, I've labeled myself a fan and then I hated this. Well, now I have a, a contradiction here of who am I if I, if I hated the thing that's got the word Star Trek on it. And so I think that they, they do want to purge the bad fans. And, and they've, it, Disney at least has sort of intimated as such that we only want the good fans, the fans who will just consume and not ask questions. Um, and we'll get excited when something has a, a label on it. Uh, when this thing says Pixar, I'll get excited about it. It doesn't matter if it's a good film. I just, it's Pixar. So I'll go watch it. Uh, it says Star Wars, so I'll go watch it and I'll, I'll clap. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's who they want. Um, and I think they don't want the old fans, even though they have the money and are clearly very willing to 
to spend on it. You know, I mean, uh, the, the advertising stuff, like with the uh, the fact that uh, Force Awakens and, all, and the, the prequels, or excuse me, the sequels, all did this stuff where I think they made like very identifiable characters, which the original trilogy did too. But it is about that consumerism of, oh, I have a um, BB-8 plushie and I have this, um, I have, uh, I don't know. What even other, what did they, what else did they really monetize? Oh, the, um, what were those little, the little animals that lived on Luke's Island that people thought were cute? Porgs. The Porgs, right. Oh, God, they were everywhere. It was so frustrating. Well, they're everywhere inside Galaxy's Edge, too. I'm sure they are. <laughs> but that, that's like clearly monetizable stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Star Trek did that, right? Like, people, this is so, such old information now, but uh, Star Trek tried really hard to do marketing. In, uh, I think it's in a second season episode, they introduced this uh, Vulcan symbol of logic called IDIC, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And there's a little like pin that went along with it. I have one. I have had to mm-hmm. fight at many points in my life to not get that tattooed on my body, but, <laughs> but it did, nobody bought it. Like they made products with it and nobody bought them. Cause the mm-hmm. people who were watching Star Trek, I guess at the time were like 14 year old nerds who didn't have any money. And in the same way, they're interestingly appealing to the same people but uh, I guess they just want that, that it's the same thing. They just want that consumerism and haven't noticed that it, it, that's not what gets people into this stuff and keeps them around. You'll make some instant money from people wanting to buy their pork plush or their, their BB-8, but they're not going to stick around. They're not going to be interested in 10 years. No, and I think that's, that may be Disney's problem as a whole, as far as their parks go. Because uh, right now, well, they were up until a certain point. I've, I've worked on some Disney projects as far as construction goes. The, the push to make, to push uh, Marvel into every park is going mm. to backfire because they're using actors as the, um, as the face of it. So if you put Chris Pratt on something and Chris Pratt makes a social faux pas, like being yeah. openly Christian. Being a, oh, how dare he? <laughs> what are you going to do with the, Chris Pratt animatronic the all the footage of Chris Pratt all the marketing material Chris Pratt uh, the building facade that features Chris Pratt it's all going to age poorly not not only because of a social faux pas but in reality in 20 years he's not gonna look he's not gonna look like that (laughs) I mean I mean Chris Pratt didn't look like Chris Pratt now you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I was a huge fan of Parks and Rec. So that was certainly mm-hmm. a, a, an interesting switch. But um, it, uh, yeah, I, I do find that weird because like, you know, they wouldn't keep up. So like Warner Brothers has rebooted Batman and Superman every 10, five to 10 years for the last well, Superman, geez, since the years. 70s. Yeah. yeah. So for a long time, just, well, we'll just reboot it. People... And it makes sense. And actually, that's very much in line with essentially the way that DC handles its characters as legacies in that, you know, Superman will always be around, but now we've got, you know, this version of, of, of Superboy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, DC has families, whereas Marvel keeps the same characters forever. So, you know, there's many different flashes or several, <clears throat> and there, but there's no, there's only one Quicksilver. Right. There's a difference between the way Marvel and DC run their uh, sliding timescale versus um, more solidified timescale. And, 
Yeah, but that that is a problem, right? DC has been able to get away with that because there's sort of this idea that Batman is just the name and Superman can kind of be anybody. And maybe that's in part because normally they don't give Superman much of a character. <laughs> so, um, and maybe that's on purpose. Whereas the Marvel characters have really defined characters and it, that are influenced very heavily by those actors. So you can't, I don't think you can recast and just redo the Avengers mm-hmm. in 15 years. I don't think you could do that. I mean, they, they'll try, I'm sure, but. <laughs> well, just imagine if, uh, if, uh, let me think, let me think how I want to phrase this without being too mean. Uh, <laughs> let's say Robert Downey Jr. did a backward slide into his, sure. in, into what he, into how he was in the 90s. Do you think Disney would be so apt to, to stick Iron Man on everything at that point? That's, yeah, probably not. Yeah, because you're banking on the celebrity of the character and not the character itself, which... They probably... This is a really... We're talking about bad thing to say. This is really morbid. Disney probably hopes most of these people die sooner rather than later, because if they die, then you have an excuse. They can't They can't get in trouble, and, and, and you can just solidify their memory forever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really funny post that is the only way... I don't know how to describe it. Um Oh, shoot. Who's the guy who wrote it now? Um, it, it was about, man, I know the, the author. He's a comic book writer. Uh, I can't, why am, is his name escaping me? He wrote this like fictional post about going to the DC offices to be hired to write Watchmen 2. Uh, and one of the things is that they have this giant statue of, it was before Watchmen 2 was a thing, by the way. This, he wrote this in like, mm-hmm. 2008 or something and um there's a big statue of superman in the lobby and they go uh one of the people who works for dc says oh yeah we uh we take the bones of the vessels through which uh people are allowed to write superman and we just put them inside this statue and it kind of why it reminded me of that because you, you're just a temporary vessel through which superman can be written mm-hmm. uh, you're not a writer you're not an artist you're you're a vessel um oh chip zadarsky yeah that was okay. it if, if if you ever want to have a laugh, it's several pages long. Uh, I mean, it, it's phrases being a chapter at a lot of like his memoirs, and it, it is uh, certainly a, a wild ride <laughs> of his trip to DC and getting to write the, the Aquaman. Now <laughs> it's it's very amusing. Chip Zdarsky is actually a very good comic book author too. He's funny. Sorry, uh, the aside. <laughs> As far as how nerd nerd fandoms are kind of being taken over, as we've talked about by people that I don't think have the best interests in mind for the brand, I do you see activism injecting itself into pop culture dying out or ramping up? Well, if there's no negative to it. Now... <laughs> Money. I, well... Here's the thing, it might. And the reason why it, why is that over the last four years that this stuff has gotten really bad, it's actually been getting worse over the last 12 since Occupy Wall Street. I was talking about this last night and I've been talking about this for the last couple of days because I've really noticed it recently with the stuff that's happening in the stock market mm-hmm. is that when the lower class gets together and goes, hey, screw that fat cat who's, who's messing with our lives, uh, that's dangerous for the people in power. 
they don't like the left and the right to come together as the lower and middle classes as the proletariat. So in the response to Occupy Wall Street, there was this huge increase in, in articles mentioning things like systemic oppression, uh, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia. And all of a sudden, all these articles are printed to really divide people. Don't pay attention about how you're, you're both equally poor. Uh, pay attention to how you don't agree on, I don't know, guns or abortion or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the same thing, uh, th- that's been very useful for a long time. And even though that happened starting under Obama, uh, they ramped it up so much under Trump there's a term useful idiot. (laughs) I don't know if you've heard of it, but the, the idea is essentially that at some point these people aren't useful anymore, you know, going out and, and doing this activism and protesting. Uh, If it makes the current administration look bad, well, they might not be so tolerant of it. The media might not be so sycophantic towards that behavior. And I think what you might see is that a lot of this stuff might go away in, in a sense. And it's funny because I think that's why people voted for Biden is they just want it to stop. They just want to, the the activism and the social justice stuff to just stop so they can watch their movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so maybe it will. Maybe it will die down because people are tired of it. But it might be uncontrollable at this point. I, I'm more prone to think that you've put too many people into positions of power based entirely off of complaining about representation in Marvel movies, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can't imagine they're gonna stop unless you stop paying them, I guess. Um, we'll see what happens. I think it could go either way. I think it could ramp up and just keep going or it could dissipate into the ether. <laughs> All right, I think that's that's where we'll wrap it, but uh, where can people find uh, your videos and, and you on social media? Sure, you can check out my videos at uh, A-Y-D-I-N Paladin on YouTube. Uh, I do videos that predominantly focus on the intersection of social science, social psychology, and uh, current topics in the news, a lot of pop culture stuff. Uh, I'm going to be covering the the GameStop GME uh, stock thing in my next video. Uh, But yeah, that's, I I just uh, sometimes cover pop culture, sometimes just uh, regular news. Aiden Paladin on on, uh, Twitter as well. You've been listening to the Sixth Sense Media Podcast. You can find more of our celebrity interviews and roundtable discussions on iTunes, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Be sure to check out our movie, TV, and video game coverage at SixthSense.com and FanBolt.com.